You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Have you always wanted to hear the hockey stories told from the press box? For your premier source of hockey prospect news from across the AHL, NCAA, Canadian Hockey League, and international leagues, this is your all-access pass to The Press Zone, a hockey podcast packed with news, analysis, interviews, and entertainment featured on AHLReport.com. Your hosts, Amy Johnson and Rick Stevens, are experienced, credentialed hockey reporters, bringing you stories built from strong connections throughout the hockey community and from inside rinks all across North America. Welcome to The Press Zone. Well, hello there, Habs fans. Welcome to this week's episode of The Press Zone Montreal, episode 214, right here on The Press Zone, uh, the AHL Report and Rocket Sports Media. Of course, we're a proud affiliate of the Hockey Podcast Network, and a big thanks to our sponsor, DraftKings. You'll be hearing from them uh, with a special offer just a little while later in the show. But first, we want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. Uh, We are very excited about today's show. Let me tell you, we've got a great guest coming up for you. But first, we should introduce ourselves. I am your host, Amy Johnson. I'm also the lead correspondent here at the AHL Report. And of course, joining me each and every week, he's the guy who makes all of this possible. He's our founder and our editor-in-chief at Rocket Sports, and he is Rick Stevens. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. Um, things are underway. We're, we're past Labor Day. We're into se- September. Football season has started. Fantasy football has started. My mom asked me for my Christmas list already. No. Well, that's this is late for her, actually. Oh, is that right? Did <laughs> yeah. you have it ready to, to give to her? No, I tell her. She starts usually in August, and I tell her every year, wait, maybe at like Black Friday, I'll give you <laughs> give you my list. I see. At my age, I don't... It's Yes. Yeah, yes, what's I, on your list? I would not... Well... It's only September. I can't reveal mm. these things. But yes, it's going quickly. It's really going quickly. It is. Um, we've got, uh, you know what we're going to do today? Uh, excited because fantasy football started this past weekend. Um, I did kind of, I did, I did, I, I, I pulled a 500. I had two wins and two losses this weekend, uh, which is, which is Okay. I'd like a little better. I'd like to be above 500. Um, had some good chirping going on, but I got to say, you know, we're going to talk some trash today. We are. We're talking trash today. We're not chirping. We're talking Danbury trashers today. Uh, if you're familiar with, uh, with the new Netflix documentary about the uh, now defunct UHL, former UHL team, the Danbury trashers, they have a not. Netflix documentary called Untold Crime and Penalties. Um, 
It's an untold story. We're going to tell the story. <laughs> we are. We have someone joining us today who's going to help us tell the story. Um, and so we're going to get to that in, in just a moment. But Actually, some stories that weren't in the documentary. That's right. Mm-hmm. That is very true. You're going to hear some new, fresh things today. Uh, before we get to all of that and, and a rundown of what we're going to talk about, though, today, Rick, um, we should give a, I, I suppose we should give a little bit of a tip of a hat uh, to some breaking news today about uh, we've certainly lost uh, one of the great comedians uh, and and Habs fans uh, at, a, at a young age. We just found out today. Norm MacDonald, um, yes, funny, funny man, uh, a, a unique brand of, of, of humor, mm-hmm. um, born in Quebec, born in Quebec City, and uh, a passionate Habs fan. He tweets about uh, sports. He did tweet about sports all the time, and certainly throughout the uh, Canadian Stanley Cup final run. And um, he said uh, uh, after the Canadians, uh, when, when was this? tweet june 25th it was a historic night and my only regret was not being there live but i was glued to my tv and thrilled to be watching my heroes move on hard to believe it's been 28 years the best is yet to come congratulations to the greatest ever the mighty montreal canadians at uh, being a tweet from norm mcdonald uh, learned that he passed away today at the young age of 61, uh, apparently had been keeping his his health very private uh, for, for the public and fans, but uh, allegedly had been battling cancer for the last 10 years uh, and succumbed to that today. So our thoughts to Norm MacDonald's family, his, uh, his legacy certainly will last for many, 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 many years to come. Uh, he's just uh, one of a kind, Norm MacDonald, and we're very sorry to hear of his passing. Uh, so we are going to talk some hockey today. Before we uh, get to the fun stuff that, well, I shouldn't say, it's not like the, the Montreal Canadian stuff isn't the fun stuff. Before we get to the, the true entertainment portion of the show this week, uh, we are going to start in the first segment talking about the Montreal Canadiens, uh, give you the ins and outs of rookie camp that are going that's going to start this week, uh, some updates about the Canadiens charity golf tournament next week, which is always the, the kickoff to training camp, uh, and a little bit of news out of Trois-Rivières at the ECHL level, and then... Then, uh, yes, in the second segment, um, we are going to uh, welcome to the show for the first time uh, a very, very uh, fun guy to talk to. Uh, he was one of the featured interviews in the Netflix documentary about the Danbury Trashers. Uh, he is Phil Jubileo. He is, uh, well, has the honor and distinction of being the only play-by-play broadcaster ever in Danbury Trashers history. That's right. Uh, The voice of the Trashers is going to join us and uh, he's going to talk a bit about what it was like being uh, part of that team and what it was like uh, going through the Netflix production and reliving it all uh, and lots more. He's got some fabulous stories to tell. You are not going to want to miss the second half of the show today. Uh, so with that, we should uh, let's kick things off with some rookie camp talk, Rick. Um, it's hard to believe that that the time has come, um, but rookie camp is is here. We uh, we've been seeing the Canadians, of course, um, kind of they're going through some of their their not necessarily 
official media day, but they're already starting to put together some some media packages and so forth with some of some of the guys uh, who are already uh, in the Montreal area. And uh, so that's happening. But the rookies are set to take the ice in Broussard on Wednesday. Uh, 27 players invited to attend uh, rookie camp. Uh, that's 16 forwards, eight defensemen, and three goaltenders. Um, and Rick, I think uh, for the most part, most of those names uh, on the on the roster who will be taking the ice in Broussard are pretty familiar. For sure. Um, either they've been to a camp before or uh, we recognize those names because they came from the most recent uh, NHL entry draft. Uh, Wednesday, they'll be in for fitness uh, testing and evaluation. Thursday, they actually get on the ice um, for some for some drills. Uh, there will be a game against the Senators uh, rookies on Saturday uh, in Ottawa, and then back um, they'll They'll uh, play again on Monday, those two teams this time in, in Montreal. Um, the, there, there, there is a, a fair bit of interest in, in uh, uh, the rookies that will be there. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Caden Gooley and, and Jan Meshack and, mm-hmm. and Johnny Fairbrother, who uh, were able to get into games last year with uh, the CHL not playing, at, at times not playing. They were able to get into action for Lavelle last year. And then there's the the newly drafted uh, guys that we, we've been talking in our Slack group about uh, excited to see Riley Kidney, mm-hmm. um, Joe Verbetic, uh, the goaltender. Uh, the really interesting story about Danil uh, Sabalev, um, who who uh, went to uh, Michigan and and has been training for for a year and and we saw his his uh, height and weight jump up uh, you know in the time that he's there and and uh, he'll be at camp uh, as well um, so it should be exciting to see them on the ice and as is typically the case with the rookie camp uh, it will be the coaching staff of the AHL affiliate who will be running all of the on and off ice uh, activities. So that'll be headed up by new Rocket head coach Jean-Francois Uhl, uh, along with his assistant coaches Kelly Bookberger, Martin LaPerriere, and Marco Marciano. Um, fans, unfortunately, will not be permitted into Broussard to watch rookie camp uh, this year due to COVID-19 uh, protocols, uh, safety protocols, and so forth. However, of course, uh, as always, our crew here at the AHL Report is credentialed to cover rookie camp. We will be on the calls. Uh, all media availabilities will still be held virtually this year Uh for the camp. So we'll be on all of those calls chatting with uh, the coaches and the players and uh, likely kicking it off with the, with uh, the first media availability on Wednesday with the Canadians director of player development, Rob Ramage. So uh, be sure you've bookmarked AHLreport.com. Check back uh, daily throughout camp and we'll be sure to have uh, audio posted from those press conferences and some updates of, of how things are going throughout camp. Uh, so that you can stay on top of how the youngsters are doing in their uh, in their lead up to um, training camp. And if you want, uh, if you haven't seen the full roster, Rick, I guess we should mention that uh, there is an article on the AHL Report website with all of those details and a and a copy of the full roster uh, mm-hmm. for people to reference there as well. So once they get through, and and we'd like, love to hear who you're excited to well, see. Well, yeah. 
Absolutely. Drop us a comment uh, either on that article or, or on Twitter at the AHL report. Um, you know, who are the who are the prospects that you're most looking forward to seeing in action um, this year? Is it Jan Mishak? Is it uh, Gianni Fairbrother? Is it one of the, the goaltenders that you're interested in watching? Is it somebody that's there on a tryout, maybe? Yes, he alone Yes, he uh, alone. maybe <laughs> has a chance to, to, to make the NHL roster. I'm, Matthias Norlander, uh, mentioned by name by Mark Bergevin this summer. That's true. Um, I'm particularly excited to see how uh, how Yessi Alonen has has progressed over the summer i after the season that he had last year uh in in laval i'm very very anxious to see what kind of progression he's made uh so after the the rookies spend uh you know the better part of a week uh doing their camp um the canadians will kick off their first day of training camp on wednesday september 23rd with medicals and so forth but before that happens as is tradition the canadians will host their golf tournament uh, on Tuesday, September 22nd. Uh, and that is, of course, completely uh, for the benefit of uh, the Montreal Canadiens Children's Foundation. Um, but Rick, there's a bit of a twist uh, this year. Of course, you know, we've talked about this quite often that, you know, it's everything is full steam ahead that things feel normal for this hockey season in terms of the pandemic, but there are occasions such as this where it's obvious that we're not back to normal yet. That's right. Um, I, w- I should mention, if you're looking at your calendars, uh, it it uh, looks like that golf tournament is on the 21st. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes. Tuesday the 21st. Um, but uh, the, the most important part of it is that, uh, that players... Uh, they won't be there. Coaches, they won't be there. Um, management, um, GMs, uh, front office staff, uh, the, the NHL protocols, uh, and they're, uh, they're pretty strict with, um, with what they allow players to do and, and well, um, team members to do mm-hmm. uh, with respect to uh, um, promoting during the, the, uh, the pandemic, the COVID protocol still in place. Uh, so none of, of uh, those groups that I just remem- uh, mem- mentioned will be there. Um, it will be uh, certainly alumni of the, of the Montreal Canadiens, the, the golf tournament. And remember, it's a, a charity golf tournament uh, for the Montreal Canadiens Children's, Children's Foundation. Um, it will still proceed, but without the usual cast. And, and usually that's the first media availability uh, mm-hmm. for access to players to talk about their summers. That won't happen uh, this year. At the tournament, uh, no that that is that is true. Uh, so the first media availabilities won't happen until training camp actually kicks off on Wednesday, the twenty second. I'm sorry, I had date I had dates and days uh, scrambled up in my head there. Um, so yes, uh, participants at the golf tournament can expect to to uh, rub shoulders with plenty of uh, Canadians alumni, um, and uh, you know the Children's Foundation. I'm sure they're all hoping for uh, still a good turnout. This is one of of the Canadians flagship fundraisers for the children's foundation throughout the year. So, uh, and I believe it was canceled last year altogether. So I'm sure they're looking forward to getting things rolling there again, but just, uh, another example of how things are not quite back to normal yet. Uh, and there will be continued kind of interruptions and, and things like that, that are, that are going to seem a little different, um, as we, as we move forward through the beginning of this season. 
Um, finally, in this segment, we just want to mention uh, that, um, of course, you know, things won't really get active for the Laval rocket until, you know, at a quarter of the way through the Canadians training camp once cuts start being made um, and, and players start reporting to Laval. But for the ECHL, the 12 Riviere Lions are already kind of starting to, to do uh, some some on-ice activities of their own. Uh, Rick, they're currently, um, they've been promoting this on Twitter uh, all week. Um, they're currently holding what they're calling a pre-camp, but it sounds like it's kind of a, a tryout camp. It's a, yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. A community outreach uh, to involve uh, um from mostly from Quebec, you have players from U Sports, you have uh, from the LNAH, from the Q. Um, it's it's a, a group of thirty seven players who've been invited, um, hoping to find that walk on that mm-hmm. uh, that can be part of, and 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 that's a good story, right? It's oh, it's always. a good community yeah. story that that somebody came and blew them away at a <laughs> at a at a pre camp and then gets to join the the main training camp. So um, that that uh, began on Sunday at uh, the brand new Videotron Coliseum. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. It, it, uh, goes through today actually. And, and, uh, uh, we'll see if there's any that any players that come out and, and are invited to attend the main camp, uh, for the, uh, Trois Riviere Lions. And they've actually, their social media team has been doing a great job of posting some video clips and so forth throughout the week. So you can, uh, of course, check out their Twitter timeline for a little bit of that. And you mentioned, that's the other piece of news, uh, their building has a name, uh, Vid- the Videotron Coliseum being unveiled officially as the the partnership with Videotron was announced last week. Um, that's pretty exciting for them. And, and they also got a TV deal uh, out of it as well. So TBS Sports will uh, will broadcast uh, 25, 26 home games. Of, That's a lot. Uh, yeah, it's it's unprecedented in the uh, ECHL. Uh, so you'll get a chance to see uh, players at the ECHL level um, through uh, TBS Sport. That's tremendous. Uh, so as we say, you know, things are, this is the week that things uh, we've been saying each week, things are starting to get moving. Things are really starting to come together, but this is the week that things really start to cook. Uh, rookie camp begins tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, remember to bookmark ahlreport.com. Uh, the AHL report team will have, uh, almost daily updates, uh, throughout camp. Uh, and, and as we move into training camp next week, so be sure you're following at the AHL Report and uh, head to AHLReport.com for all the latest Habs and Rocket news. Uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break. Let me tell you, when we come back on the other side, uh, we've got some AHL news to cover. And then we are so thrilled to be welcoming Phil Jubileo, the former play-by-play broadcaster for the Danbury Trashers to the show He has got some stories to tell that you do not want to miss. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. Week one may be over, but the season's just getting started at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off week two, DraftKings is giving new customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. 
Listen up, because you don't want to miss this. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any Week 2 game to receive $200 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. And welcome back to the Press Zone right here on the AHL Report and Rocket Sports Media. Once again, I'm your host, Amy Johnson, joined by my co-host, Rick Stevens. And hey, are you following this podcast on Twitter? If you're not, shame on you. Go do it right now. It's at the Press Zone. And of course, be sure you're following at the AHL Report uh, for all of your latest AHL news, uh, prospect news. Uh, that's the place you want to go. So be sure you're following at the AHL Report or at the Press Zone. And Rick, we really don't want people to miss a single episode of the Press Zone, whether they like to listen to the Press Zone, the Montreal edition or the Press Zone, Philadelphia edition or both. We don't want them to miss a single episode. So what's the best way for them to make sure that they don't? Players are getting ready for the season. We're getting ready for the season. <laughs> you must get ready for the season That's by subscribing right. to this podcast. Uh, subscribe in your what, your favorite podcast platform, whatever you're listening to this on. Uh, hit the subscribe button. Maybe you're listening in the, the uh, player, in our own player. Uh, there's a subscribe button in that too. Uh, just a um, little preview. Uh, you're going to get a brand new uh, upgraded player by the time the new season Ooh. starts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just a tease. Fancy schmancy. But go ahead and subscribe anyway, right now, uh, while you have a chance. Pause us, subscribe, come back, and listen to the rest of the podcast. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, we're getting ready for the season here. Uh, I want to just, first and foremost, uh, once now that we're in kind of our AHL report section uh, of the show, I want to give a very warm welcome to three, not one, not two, but three more additional Rocket Sports media team members uh, who have just been uh, welcomed into the fold uh, this week. That is Cole and Michael and Maria. Uh, they'll be helping us out at All Habs Hockey Magazine. They'll be helping us out at the AHL Report. Uh, they'll be helping us out on the podcasts, both here at the Press Zone and over at Canadians Connection. Rick, it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, that makes it, including Patrick Williams, we've got so far uh, a fantastic four-person 2021 draft class. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, uh, with respect to the press zone and with respect to AHL report, we've uh, really beefed up our, our uh, 
compliment in adding three of those people, Michael, Maria, and Patrick. Uh, so you're going to get an awful lot of coverage uh, and uh, you, you, you don't want to miss any of it. So make sure you bookmark um, AHL Report, ahlreport.com. And as we said before, subscribe to the, the Press Zone podcast. Absolutely. So uh, if you are, if you've been thinking, maybe I should, you know, put an application in to join the team, uh, there is still time to do that. You could join uh, Patrick and Cole and Michael and Maria in our Rocket Sports 2021 fall draft class. Uh, the opportunity is still there, but time is running out. So uh, stay tuned. At the end of this segment, we will give you all the information on how you can do that. If you're interested in uh, contributing to either All Habs Hockey Magazine or one of our podcasts or the AHL Report. Well, Rick, I have to say there's, uh, you know, I, the guests that we have here on the Press Zone are always special. They always have great stories to tell to tell but I think I think today's guest is going to take the cake as far as just a fascinating story and I'm just very excited to be able to welcome to the show Phil Jubileo uh, the former broadcaster play-by-play broadcaster for the Danbury Trashers featured in the new Netflix docuseries Untold Crime and Penalties Phil thanks so much for being here with us today Amy and Rick thank you so much for having me Um, so I guess you know First and foremost, whether folks have seen the documentary or not on Netflix, if you haven't, what are you waiting for? You need to go watch this if you're a hockey fan at any level. (laughs) Uh, But first and foremost, was working for the Danbury Trashers as jaw-dropping as watching the documentary was? Uh, in some ways, even more jaw dropping. It was such an amazing experience that the story, it gives you a real flavor and a sense for what the franchise was all about, kind of what went on during those two seasons. Uh, having been around professional sports, minor league and, and you know, otherwise for so many years, it's been an experience unlike any other. Uh, it's not to say that there weren't you know many days that were normal for, for someone working in sports. Indeed, there were many normal days where it didn't feel any different but it was just there were things that would happen and it seemed like on a a, at least a weekly basis that would just make you wonder and be like this isn't happening anywhere else (laughs) in the world let let alone in sports phil you're a a storyteller and uh and a and a good play-by-play guy has to be a good storyteller but uh your focus uh early on was uh baseball basketball and then you had an opportunity to uh, be the play-by-play uh, guy uh, in the USHL, uh, the uh, Junior Hockey League in, in St. Louis, uh, a year experience there. And then you saw this opportunity in, in Danbury and, and you uh, reached out to the league office and uh, they set up an interview for you. So how did that interview go? It was quick. So sometimes, you know, you go to an interview and it's really fast and it's like, wow, this isn't going well. It was quite the opposite for me. Uh, As you mentioned, Rick, I had an opportunity to work with the league office, which was near where I was living at the time. And I flew out to Danbury during the baseball all-star break. I drove up to the dump or the transfer station, which is the more accurate name. And don't you know that you call it a dump? And I got it. I mean, no one's ever said this. It has it wasn't part of the documentary. This was the cleanest dump I've ever been to. I've only been to one. But this is the cleanest one I've ever been to. Basically, you and I as God is my witness. You could eat off the floor in this place. I mean, there were always people around cleaning. Uh, you didn't really you would see where the trucks were coming in 
and out and leaving garbage. But there wasn't a, a speck of actual garbage on the floor in this place. So it was immaculate. And the buildings, the office building, Building 7, I still remember that, it was even more immaculate. And that is where Jimmy's office went. So it was. So uh, I, I get there. I go up to Jimmy's office and, and get called in with Jimmy and AJ. And the interview basically just went like this. Jimmy looks me up and down uh, the Jimmy stare, as was described in the documentary from the Amicholi brothers. And Jimmy says, well, Richard Brosell sent you here. Richard, of course, is a very prominent person in the documentary, the commissioner of the UHL. And uh, I said, yes, Jimmy. Uh, by the way, I was told ahead of time, don't call him Mr. Galante. It's Jimmy. And that's <laughs> okay. what I did. Um, and I said, yes, Jimmy, that that's that's correct. Looks me up and down another few seconds. And the next words out of his mouth. Well, Phil, how much do you want to make? That was the question he asked me. He asked me right about salary, right? Job <laughs> interviews. No one, no one even wants to broach that subject, especially in broadcasting. You're like, no. and, and to be honest, it's like, ooh, how am I getting lowballed here? That's a normal job interview, right? So that's kind of how it works in broadcasting in a lot of other places. Uh, but here I, I threw a number out there thinking I was about to get into some sort of negotiation. Uh, moving on the East Coast, I know it's more expensive. I, I threw a number out there that was a good number. It wasn't, it wasn't a duffel bag full of cash. If you saw the film, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Nothing like that. There were no duffel bags involved in my hiring. And uh, I give Jimmy the number. Jimmy Jimmy looks at AJ, AJ looks back at Jimmy, shrugs his shoulders and nods. And the next word out of Jimmy's mouth is, uh, hey, Phil, when can you start? And I was offered <laughs> the job right on the spot. Wow. Uh, Jimmy, did, to, to my knowledge, he didn't look at my resume. Uh, I know for a fact that he didn't actually hear any of my broadcasting work until I called a couple of Trashers games, uh, one on the road in particular. And that's how I got the job. And it, and it was, you know, just amazing from there. So, uh, but they were both, uh, both Jimmy and AJ were rather hands-on. Uh, he may not have heard uh, your broadcast before you were hired, but certainly heard you uh, a after you became the the play-by-play, the, -play the only play-by-play uh, -play broadcaster in Danbury Trasher's history. Did did they ever offer suggestions or, or stronger than suggestions? Oh, you might want to change this. Don't be this critical. Do this. Say this. Uh, was there any of that hands-on kind of management of your uh, role? No. In fact, quite the opposite. I... I remember after our first road game, and it was in Elmira, a game that that the Trashers lost, mind you, and it was a it was a complete gong show fight wise. I mean, there were <laughs> close to two hundred penalty minutes in the first period, oh. much more so than the first game of the season against the Adirondack Frostbite, which is described in the film. And Jimmy brings me into the office. He he first he compliments my broadcasting, which was great to hear. And I said, "Hadn't you heard my work?" And and he didn't really quite answer my question. So I felt at that point he he hadn't listened to my work, uh, but he was happy with everything. And I've got to say, in fact, during the two years that I broadcasted games, I was told to basically be completely honest, call the game as I see it. Uh, you know, if if the team's not playing well, I, it's totally fine for me to mention that. If the team's playing great, it's totally fine for me to mention that. Not once in two seasons was I asked to make any sort of adjustment to my broadcast, which it does not surprise me with, with Jimmy and AJ. The one thing that I noticed in my time there and um, 
they placed a lot. They were very hands-on, but they also gave everyone a lot of responsibility. And this really even branched out to my job as uh, the director of communications and the PR director mm-hmm. uh, and anything that I ever wrote in a press release or a news story or whatever. Uh, we would we would run them all through Jimmy, any press release or something. We'd make sure that he that he would see it. Never asked me to change a single word in two years. You know, I wrote hundreds of press releases during that time. Not not a single, nothing out of place. Everything was good to go. And and in that, you know, that is something that even to this day is something that you would not honestly find anywhere no. in sports because there's always someone that has something to say. <laughs> and and I never had to worry about that at all. Now, what? so once, so you're hired, you have probably the world's quickest interview um, <laughs> and, and hiring process. You get hired, you come on board with the Trashers. Um, what were there, you know, and I, and I understand storytelling in a, in a, in a documentary is, is meant to, to pull viewers in, in certain ways and so forth. So, th- so there was a very foreboding tone at, at points during the documentary talking about, you know, FBI investigations and, and covert operations and, and this, that, and the other, and the mafia connections and all of those kinds of things. But for, for you in day-to-day life in the time and in the moment, was any, was any of that even on the radar or was it just kind of like business as usual in day-to-day life working for the Danbury Trashers and, and, and you you could see in the documentary too that so practically everyone in that documentary said Jimmy Galani's a great guy. He's just he's just you know the whole family is just they're great people. So what was what was the experience like for you? Well, first off, I echo everyone's comments about Jimmy and AJ and the Galante family. I mean, these were amazing people to work for. Uh, just from day one, they they treated us all like family. And really, I it's something that, again, I had worked several years in minor league baseball before that. I worked with a USHL team and, and the baseball experience was good. The USHL experience was quite dysfunctional, a team that lasted only one season for a variety of um, you know reasons. I get to Dan Danbury, and it was it was just wonderful. Here I am. I have a job. I can I can do the job as I want to do it. Uh, I'm able to call a really uh, exciting team that's doing you know they're winning hockey games and beating the crap out of their opponents on the ice physically, <laughs> uh, and it didn't get any more exciting for me from that standpoint. So in that respect, it was great. And then in respect in terms of the day by day experience, quite honestly. It really was like a normal working for a normal team. It was the first pro hockey team I ever worked for. But if I compare it back to my days in baseball, it was very similar. Uh, the only difference is I was the one person with experience working in sports. <laughs> All of the other people that worked in our front office either had some part time work maybe under them. Uh, our ticket manager, she was right out of college. She was fantastic, though, and, and caught on right away. So I was the person brought on board that had pro sports experience. Everyone else was kind of learning on the fly. But the, the thing was, everyone worked their butts off and and got the job done, which was great. And the the stuff with the FBI and the investigations, blah, that kind of stuff. I honestly had no sense of it until there was that FBI raid after the first season, which mm-hmm. was prominently in the news. And then, yeah, now, you know, there's something going on. And, and you know, but even after that, uh, Jimmy was pretty quick to just come out and say, you know what, it's business as usual. usual. He's going to handle all that stuff and just go on with your job. And that's what we did. 
the community of, of Danbury um, really embraced this team. Uh, the, um, the, the fan reaction, uh, the, the fan base, uh, they, they were rabid fans. Uh, they, uh, you sold out quite often. Um, the, the Section 102 is infamous in, in the documentary. Um, the, the, at this level of hockey, uh, there was, uh, it, it's kind of unheard of to have a full building. And not only that, but, but people scalping tickets out front to, to get in. Talk about the, the community reaction, the fan reaction, and, and the energy that they gave the team every night. Well, you know, we had one of the smaller buildings in the league. It was just over 3,000 seats. We barely hit the, the league minimum for seating in the league, in the United Hockey League. So from that aspect, selling out happened quite often. We weren't in a very big city, Danbury, and I think it still is the fifth largest city in the state of Connecticut. And we didn't really market too far outside of uh, Danbury and the couple of surrounding towns. Now, we'd get hockey fans from all over that came in because of word of mouth. And... Uh, yeah, so it didn't take much to sell out the building and then the man, the demand, especially once the lockout really kind of clenched down and, and no one was going to have any NHL hockey. They heard about the Trashers, how exciting it was, and you know, there'd be lots of goals and lots of fights, and it really <laughs> got just everyone amped up. In terms of the local Danbury presence, a big reason why they fell in love with the team was the team was everywhere. One thing, and it was part of my job, was to make sure that players – got out in the community and and we did literally hundreds and hundreds of player appearances barely a day went by where there weren't you know a couple of players signing autographs and meeting fans at some business in the area and we did that for both seasons so you were able to get up and close up close and personal with, with the danbury trashers we did all the school stuff all the things that you would see from a minor league team and i think we did it even more successfully in some respects and because of that and because of their success on the ice it was pretty easy to draw good crowds now, just to kind of piggyback onto that, you know, Rick mentioned Section 102 uh, there, which, as as he said, featured prominently in the documentary, and and just what a what a base of fans that was who were there to to wreak havoc and 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 cheer and jeer and the whole you know A to Z of it. Um, Rick actually stumbled across an, another interview that you had done where someone had asked if. if you know how many of the visiting coaches really tolerated that, and a good portion of our uh, uh, our listenership are uh, Flyers fans, and so um, they might be a little interested to hear uh, if you could just briefly tell the story of the one, particularly, you know, it came out in the documentary that that uh, you know Jimmy and AJ, particularly AJ, you know, really wanted to emulate that the nineteen seventies Broad Street bullies from from Philadelphia, but there was. Uh, a certain Dave Schultz, who was the interim head coach of the Elmira Jackals, who came to visit and uh, apparently didn't uh, take too kindly. <laughs> uh, I never figured Dave the Hammer Schultz to be the sensitive type, but apparently in this case, he was the sensitive type. And he w- he was with Elmira. You know, what's interesting is, is we even had, and I think before at this point, we'd have scouts come out. And uh, since you mentioned, um, since you mentioned the Broad Street Bullies, I know Bill Barber came out and actually um, scouted a game. I think he was he might have been scouting for Tampa Bay at that point. But okay. then a few weeks later, uh, the Elmira Jackals come in and they had already fired. They had fired their coach. They weren't playing well. So Dave DeHammer Schultz takes over as the interim coach. And one of the traditions that 
was a mainstay in Danbury, this guy, Big Mike, brought in a fire engine horn, literally strapped to like a <laughs> tank of oxygen. And during the media timeouts or any time that there wasn't play, they would tip the horn over, not to get it into the bench, but close enough. And they would just blare this thing. <laughs> I was about three sections over. I couldn't hear a thing. I can only imagine how bad it sounded in the visiting bench. So Dave the Hammer Schultz is really upset about this. And one of the things that we had in Section 102, and I don't know who mandated this. I believe it was the the city of Danbury. There was a police presence between the bench and the fans to make sure there were no fights. I mean, that is how that's how much the Section 102 (laughs) fans antagonized the visiting players. Here's the dirty little secret. Those Danbury cops are all Danbury Trashers fans on top of that. So the biggest hockey fans (laughs) would would really vie to get this like extra overtime assignment because now you get you're getting some extra money. You get free hockey because you get to watch the game and you're right behind the bench. So Dave the Hammer Schultz starts, you know, pleading with whoever the cop was that night, kind of uh, policing the bench from the fans. And it's like, can you get this horn out of the building? And basically the cop just he didn't laugh at him but he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said no and and Dave Schultz was really upset about it normally most coaches would just stop trying you couldn't hear a thing you wouldn't be able to coach your players you just let it go and and that was just one of the many things that when you would come to Danbury would get some of the players talking about uh, having what was quote unquote the Danbury flu they didn't really want to play mm. in Danbury whether it was that whether it was uh, T-Bone and AJ coming up with schemes to uh, vandalize the opposing locker rooms with, you know, just a few towels or, you know, dirty fish under the, you know, under the ceiling so that they would rot and create a rancid smell, all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, You know, not every player necessarily wanted to come out. And if they did, they weren't all too excited about it. So it, the the picture, uh, both from from the documentary and as we're talking today, it, I mean, a gong show. It, it was it was craziness in the building, but it shouldn't be forgotten that uh, this was a very good team. And for all of the you know the the what was said about AJ and seventeen year old kid and his dad buys him a team. Uh, he did a pretty, he understood what uh, was necessary for an on-ice product. And he had skilled guys. He had, yes, he had the physical guys. He had the guys there that were going to market the team. Um, he, he did a pretty good job um, putting this all together. So how, how did a kid, now, you know, he, he had a love of hockey from an early age, but how did he, how did he recruit um, and put together, assemble such a good team? In terms of recruiting, I know he spent a lot of time really trying to find that right mix of, you know, tough guys and and skilled players. And I think, you know, he kind of looked at it in in regards to who are players that would play at this level. So he wasn't although there were NHL guys that did come and play in Danbury because of the lockout, that wasn't initially what they were looking for. So he was really looking at players that spend time in the UHL or similar leagues, obviously really high numbers of fights and high numbers of penalty minutes. He would kind of cross-reference that with, were these good teams? He wasn't necessarily going after players that were just tough to be tough and, and their teams were lousy. In fact, three of the tough guys from season one, Amy, you mentioned the Flyers. Well, mm-hmm. three of the very toughest guys 
on the team, uh, not really talked much about during in the documentary. Frank the Animal Bialois, along with uh, Dave McIsaac and uh, Garrett Burnett, well, those three were all part of a Calder Cup championship team with the Philadelphia fans. And uh, they all racked up. Uh, Burnett was a rookie, I think, only like 20 or 21 at that point. But, you know, the Animal and Dave McIsaac were there all season. McIsaac had a great playoff for these guys. And they obviously he put up numbers as well. Uh, so they were recruiting players, obviously, from winning teams a little bit later in, in the, their careers for the Animal and for Dave McIsaac. And then an up-and-comer like Jarrett Burnett. And, you know, they would look for guys that were part of successful teams. Same thing for, this, for the players that could put – the puck in the back of the net. So you would have, you would dress 10 forwards and six defensemen in the UHL at that time. And you'd have, you know, five or six guys easily that would drop the gloves. And the guys that didn't even drop the gloves often would be the toughest guys on some of the other teams in the league. And then the scoring players were just like elite sniper types. Uh, Brent Gretzky. And uh, yeah, I know it's Wayne's brother, but he was a sniper at that level. I mean, there was a season, I think he played in Nashville. He had close to 200 points. And there were other guys that were 40, 50 goal scorers in the United Hockey League that he brought in, players like Jim Duhart at the start who eventually got traded. So he really put that mix together of guys that were successful at that level, knowing that if you were to get the right chemistry together and they would react, then it would translate into success. And it did because you can't just drop the gloves and and really just, you know, beat the crap out of people <laughs> and have it have it really resonate and connect with fans mm-hmm. if you're not going to win hockey games. So you right. had to do that too. Uh, Mike Rupp is the one that uh, blows me away that he, during the lockout season, uh, left mm-hmm. the NHL to, to come and play. Uh, but fast forwarding to today, um, the players, the alumni from the Danbury Trashers, and you look where they are today, and Bruce Richardson, the franchise leading scorer, um, he's a uh, head coach in the queue for the Armada, uh, mm-hmm. Doug Christensen, top scoring defenseman, um, the GM and head coach for the Indy fuel, the ECHL, uh, Mario Rock, Montreal native. Um, he's in shadow gay, a triple a AAA midget team. He's the head coach of. So, uh, that group has branched off and, and is, there is a legacy to the Danbury Trashers. There is, and, and Drew Amicholi, who was in the film quite a bit with his brother Mike, I know Drew runs, a, I think it's South Shore Kings up in the Boston area, and mm-hmm. uh, David Heimovitz runs a, a team up in Boston, kind of like that, you know, kind of, you know, younger level all the way up through kind of the, the higher level, or at least like a tier two, tier three juniors, I'm not exactly sure. So yeah, there are a lot of guys that went into coaching after the Danbury Trashers. I know Nicky Bellotta, who's a, a Montreal native, has a, a hockey performance school, and a lot of his players have gone on to at least Division One, if not uh, some of those guys getting drafted. It is interesting to see how, uh, you know, AJ was able to not just recruit talented players, but also pretty smart players mm-hmm. as well from a hockey standpoint. Guys with pretty good hockey IQ, uh, the, the, those players had to make up for the wildness <laughs> that took place on the ice. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to begin a game and you're five minutes in and the Trashers are killing a, a two-man penalty for seven, nine minutes. Oh. Uh, and then they'd go and score a couple of shorthanded goals. Bruce Richardson seemed to score a lot of those shorthanded goals, by the way, uh, for the Danbury Trashers. So that was a pretty common uh, thing that happened. And Mike Rupp, I mean, just it, it was 
once he joined the team, I mean, it was just watching really a man among boys. And I know he was only in his early 20s at that point, but to watch that skill. Yeah. Uh, and there were other NHL players in the league. A few teams had him. In fact, the Motor City Mechanics had a handful of the Detroit Red Wings players on the team. Uh, Chris Chelios played for them and Sean Avery was <laughs> okay. playing for them. Oh, boy. A couple of other guys that uh, escaped my mind. Unfortunately, they wouldn't leave the state. Because, in fact, Jimmy wanted to fly them all in. He wanted to face the full oh, yeah. <laughs> Motor City Mechanics team. So he's like, I'll fly all the NHL guys out here. No one wanted to take the bus. And they refused. They wouldn't come out oh. to play in Danbury. And, you know, to this day, obviously very disappointing. And I don't think – I think when we played in Motor City that first season, you know, we might have had – they might have had Brian Smolinski in the lineup. There might have been one or two of their NHL guys. But it definitely wasn't the full group. Chelios didn't play. Sean Avery definitely didn't play. I would remember that. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, like, did they get the Danbury flu? I don't know. I mean, they didn't oh. go anywhere else outside the state. But uh, <laughs> to this day, it makes you sit back and wonder, why wouldn't they come to Danbury? A free plane ride? I guess if you're an NHL guy and you've been on a charter, maybe flying coach isn't that exciting. I don't know. But, uh, but it would have been great to see those players come out because the Trashers really wanted to play that that full Motor City Mechanics team. It never did happen. But, you know, Mike Rupp was just amazing. And the Trashers, I mentioned Garrett Burnett, who was an NHL guy. Stephen Pete played with the team for a while, the former Washington Capitals uh, enforcer. So there were a few other NHL guys that kind of, you know, played a little bit because of the lockout. But Michael Rupp was the guy that really had the impact. So what has it been like? Uh, we just have one or two more questions here for you. Mm -hmm. and, and, and really, you know, this was, in some ways, as you've described, this was uh, just another chapter in your sports broadcasting career. Um, and in, in other ways, it was iconic and exceptionally memorable and historic and so forth. What was it like reliving all of this through a Netflix production and, and, and kind of getting the crew back together? And, and did you... Did you did you see a lot of the other people during production or was, you know, what what was it like getting to relive this whole experience? The whole experience really started late in 2018. We did these interviews in the summer of 2019. So it was two years ago okay. when we when we did the film. And in the end, there's kind of a reunion with a lot of the fans and a few players. Obviously, Jimmy and AJ were part of that. And mm -hmm. that was where I got to see a lot of people. Otherwise, we were really kind of isolated in regards to where we interviewed. So I didn't get to see. I saw Jimmy and AJ, but I didn't see, you know, the Amicholi brothers or Brad Wingfield or Ruminador during the interviewing process, which I wish I could have. It just didn't work out that way for any of us really and it, but it was great to relive it and yeah it was a definitely even to this point all these many years later still the most unique chapter <laughs> in my broadcast career and I went I went from Danbury to nine years in the American Hockey League and doing fill-in in the NHL to here in Quinnipiac uh, and I've been there for several years now in Division One hockey and regardless of of where I go I mean there's going to be nothing that I do that honestly is going to be what the Danbury Trashers were mm -hmm. for those two seasons. And now it's, you know, as I as I like to say, I mean, this is up there. This in, in about two and a half weeks has become a cult classic right up there with Slapshot, right up there with Goon, uh, right up there with the Mighty Ducks. I mean, if you're a hockey fan, you're going to talk about this film for years and years. And and I really feel that way. Like, it's going nowhere. It's, it's now it's yeah. on Netflix forever. I mean, that's the thing. So 
So, you know, nothing else that I've done is going to get that kind of treatment, at least to the best of my knowledge. Incredible film. Um, but what wasn't in there? Um, as we know, when you're making a movie or documentary, TV show, things get left on the cutting room floor. And, and what's your favorite story um, that wasn't in the documentary that, that you would have put in the documentary if, if uh, you had the opportunity? Uh, oh, my God. I mean, there's so much. <laughs> and, and no, there really is. I tell people maybe 10 percent of the hockey was was talked about in the film and they they had to condense the two seasons Uh, so you know a lot there wasn't a the big narrative in terms of of games was really part of that the brad wingfield aspect of it which is very fascinating to watch Mm -hmm. and just a great you know really just a story of perseverance and in my book um and and redemption you know for winger and if you haven't watched the film you need to watch it really just for that but there was so much hockey kind of left uh, on the cutting room floor as a result of that so you couldn't really get into any of the very deep playoff runs and for me uh, the most pivotal the the biggest game that i called in the two years that i worked with the trashers wasn't talked about at all during this film and it was in the playoffs it was the first playoff series and it was against the adirondack frostbite who was the trad they were the trashers you know biggest division rival they Mm -hmm. played each other you know almost 20 times a season and the owners of the frostbite were barry melrose and steve levy of espn and there was definitely a fair amount of chatter going back and forth between the two teams and game two the trashers won the first game up in glens falls in overtime and the second game went to triple overtime Mm. and the trashers did win that game on the road jonathan gagnon picked up his first goal in a danbury uniform and it was almost the end of the third overtime guys were getting like carted off the ice and had to get iv bags during intermissions i remember nick bellotto poor guy went down looked like he got shot turned out it was just cramps uh but that's what happened. Guys were just gone. They were you, know, you were losing players on both teams left and right. Uh, they they never stopped selling beer at the Glens Falls Civic Center. Oh it's close. It's cl- until they ran out. It's close to one o'clock in the morning, and there's probably not a sober soul in the house except for the players and and the broadcasters because we were working the game. And uh, so an amazing win. The Trashers take two on the road. They would win that series in five. And I just remember waiting for the bus um, outside. Jimmy Galante basically bust up a whole bus load full of fans from Section 102, bought their tickets oh, so wow. that they could go there and do their thing on the road. <laughs> and I just remember when when Barry and Steve came out and just that the looks on their faces just really just, you know, expressionless, just, you know, distraught. No words, you know, from two, you know, obviously Barry Melrose is normally a pretty, you know, outspoken, verbose guy. Sure. And the fans from Section 102 are just laying into them, laying (laughs) into both of them because they're outside where all the players are coming out. And that's where (laughs) Levy and Melrose came out. And I and and we're a family friendly podcast. Right. So I'm not even going to utter some of the things that were just, you know, lace in the direction of those two guys. And even as I was packing up, I remember the fans, the the Frostbite fans were really livid. I had fans like yelling up at me the way the, the concourse was set up. You could like basically look up and see me 
on the platform where I was broadcasting from. So some of these fans were giving it to me. I'm like, I'm just calling the game. Yeah. I had nothing to do with what happened on me. I just want to yell at me. So I'm laughing. I think it's hysterical. But they're giving me grief. The Trasher fans are giving Barry and Steve uh, grief. So it was just, it was great. I mean, that's how wonderful that rivalry was. I don't think there's really any footage of the full game that exists. The audio's out there somewhere. I think I have it. But uh, that would have been the one thing I wish we could have told. It just there wasn't room or time for it. Absolutely. Um, have you, whether it was before the production or, or even since the production has happened, were you still in touch with, with Jimmy and AJ and, and, and T-Bone and all the guys from, from the Trashers or select members of the Trashers, or have you now gotten back in touch with them? Uh, You know, a lot of the players I stayed in touch with because of, you know, Facebook, social media, things along those lines. So a lot of the players and I are connected on Facebook and, and have been for many years. Uh, in terms of with, with Jimmy and AJ, yeah, I can tell you starting, and I want to say it was 2000, it was before we even got involved in the Netflix uh, documentary, AJ has his boxing gym mm-hmm. and every summer hasn't for the last couple of years because of COVID, put together a amateur show called The Summer Sizzler. And he represents, he has a lot of amateur boxers that find there's a really good amateur following in the state for, you know, Connecticut, USA boxing. And he brought me back to do the ring announcing. So for the last several years, whenever he has one of these shows, uh, I come in and do the ring announcing. And, uh, you know, I've never done ring announcing before, but it's fun. And I, I have a lot of I really enjoy doing it. And from there, you know, we we reconnected and then more so during the Trashers film. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I do talk to AJ, whether it's, you know, in person or, you know, more likely texting, stuff like that, messaging back and forth, you know, quite frequently, much more so now that the film has come out and we had all this stuff kind of coming up to the film. So uh, it's great. I mean, I live only about half an hour away, you know, from Danbury. I'm pretty close. So it's easy for me to get in the area and see people. That's wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. um, as you as you did uh, allude to, uh, your broadcasting career is is still flourishing. Uh, you're the play-by-play guy for uh, Quinnipiac men's and women's teams. Um, mm-hmm. Are you also currently uh, on the call for any anyone else? Uh, I for several ever since year one, I've called the Connecticut Whale in the okay. NWHL, which is now the uh, PHF. They just rebranded mm-hmm. uh, last week. And I called those games uh, since season one. I did the Isabel Cup Finals for a few years, the first three years of the Isabel Cup Finals. Last year, they were in a bubble, so I didn't get to, to work that. Hopefully, I get to return this season. But yeah, most of the time, I'm spent. Uh, I'm spending time with Quinnipiac men's and women's hockey, all their home games on ESPN+. And yeah, it's about 40 games a season. I work outside uh, broadcasting as well in a normal kind of like nine to five type of job <laughs> in, in research. And I've done that for many, many years. So uh, it's a really good mix of things that, that keeps me kind of on my toes. But, uh, you know, before going to Quinnipiac, I was in the uh, the American Hockey League for nine years with the Bridgeport Sound Tigers. I went right from Danbury to the American Hockey League, which was great in the state and, uh, you know, got to, to live out kind of like that cup of coffee broadcasting some NHL games as sure. well. So that, that was always great. And, you know, it's funny because I the first regular season NHL game I did, uh, you know, John Tavares scored five points and, and nice. Ryan, Strom had, Ryan Strom had his first NHL goal in that game. And, you know, if you still ask me what was the, the you know, most exciting game I ever called, I still tell you triple overtime trashers and frostbite in 2005 <laughs> uh even even though like the nhl's right up there i mean that's how exciting it was for me to be 
in Danbury. So I, I've gotten to do a lot. I feel very fortunate and blessed. And, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with my time in the Trashers, because without that, I wouldn't have had the exposure to continue on and, and go right to the American Hockey League and, and progress in my career. So broadcasting now, the Quinnipiac uh, Bobcats, NCAA hockey. Do you feel that there's something missing from your broadcast? I mean, you go from Danbury uh, where, you know, three, four, five, maybe six fights a, a night and now to a, a, a league that where there isn't fighting anymore. Do you miss calling and, and play-by-play guys call fights? Um, do you miss that? Well, you know, it's just not really part of hockey anymore. If you think about it, you don't see very many fights uh, per game. I remember when I first went to Bridgeport and they they weren't the trashers by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But if you go back and look through those years, they always had really good tough guys. I mean, some some of the bigger tough guys in the AHL played, whether it's a a Trevor Gillies or, um, you know, Brett Gallant came through and we'd see, um, you know, guys like Mitch Fritz played in Bridgeport, Jeremy Yablonski. I mean, these are guys, if you're fight fans, are pretty big names in that respect. Kip Brennan spent a year uh, with Bridgeport, a guy that would have fit really well on the Danbury Trashers in terms of antics and getting suspended. Uh, but um, so, but over time, even by my last year in, in 2014, 2015, there wasn't very many fights. And I know even at that level now, there's not much. Obviously, college hockey, you don't really see the fighting, but it's different. And the one thing I really do love about broadcasting in college hockey, men's or women's, college hockey is that it's about winning not not to say that players in the american hockey league don't want to win they certainly do but it's much more so about development and getting to the next level and becoming a Mm full-time nhl player and then winning is important there uh but with college hockey that's it i mean you've got to win because otherwise what's the point you know a lot of these guys do get to play some pro and and quinnipiac is a major they're always in the top 10 top 12 in the country so uh for men's hockey and women they're usually in the top 10 or just outside so they're both very well-regarded hockey programs. ECAC hockey is great to watch, uh, but it is about winning and losing. And that's something that in the last few years of working in the American Hockey League, it wasn't so much about that with the Bridgeport Sound Tigers. It was more about player development. So uh, that's the one thing I really enjoy much more about broadcasting in college hockey because there's fewer games. Each game means so much more, mm-hmm. and they really kind of lay it all out there. Well, his name is Phil Jubileo. He, uh, of course, as you just heard, he's the current uh, play-by-play broadcaster for the Quinnipiac uh, D1 men's and women's hockey teams, but was uh, the former Danbury Trashers broadcaster in the UHL and can be seen on the new Netflix docuseries Untold Crime and Penalties. Phil, we can't thank you enough for coming. I think we could probably talk for an entire afternoon about the stories that you undoubtedly have to tell, but we appreciate you taking a bit of time to to share your side of, of your Danbury Trashers experience with our listeners. Well, Amy, Rick, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Rick, I think um, I think the first thing, before we even talk about how fantastic that interview with Phil was, first and foremost, if you have not gone to Netflix and watched Untold Crime and Penalties, you've got to do it. If you like hockey, we are not kidding you about this. If you're a hockey fan at all, you are going to be shocked. You're going to laugh. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be amazed. And you're just you're going to be talking about it for weeks, right? I mean, they just have to go watch this documentary. 
this is this is something you're going to talk about uh, with your hockey friends. Um, I admit, I was a little skeptical. I thought I would be underwhelmed when uh, I watched it, and it's an incredible story. Uh, just incredible. And uh, once you've had a chance to, uh, to to watch it then, and once you've had a chance to, to listen to uh, the interview with, uh, with Phil, then uh, send your comments and we're, we're happy to hear from you about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you again to Phil Jubileo for joining us. Um, just one of the cast of characters who was interviewed and featured in that documentary on Netflix. Uh, Phil really bringing a a really unique perspective. Um, you know, you, 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 of course, Jimmy and AJ played a played a big part. Uh, they're central characters, but being the voice of the team is a very is on any given day in professional sports is a unique perspective and a unique position to hold. But uh, with a franchise like the Danbury Trashers, man, just some, I think we could have talked forever for, with, with Phil about uh, all the stories he has to tell. So we look. And Phil had a couple of hats, both the play by play (laughs) broadcaster, as well as the media relations person. So he was dealing with a lot uh, and involved in every part of, uh, the uh, the hockey uh, story here, and and uh, as you said, a really unique perspective. Absolutely. So thank you very much to Phil. We look forward to having you back uh, on the show again sometime soon. Um, one thing we want to mention: if you happen to miss last week's episode, it was one of our biweekly AHL Hot Stove weeks, uh, featuring Patrick Williams, who joined Rick and I on the show uh, in in the second half of the show last week for uh, our latest AHL Hot Stove topic, and it was the viability of this AHL season. You know, we talked, uh, we've talked about how this this upcoming hockey season, even though. Everything is, as far as the schedules look and so forth, everything is kind of moving along as it should be. But there is still this pandemic looming over everything. And there's a lot of things hanging uh, kind of up in the air and loose ends still to be tied and so forth that it makes this season upcoming really unpredictable. If you missed that, you do not want to miss it. So go back, uh, just head over to the presszone.fm and you can check, uh, look for last week's uh, episode with Patrick Williams. Um, And Rick, you know, it's interesting. We're already even seeing, you know, we're we're a week out from that interview and we're already seeing some of those effects uh, happening. Um, We've had already this week, uh, two instances. We talked last week in that segment how uh, there was a Sharks, uh, San Jose Sharks associate coach who already had to step uh, step down from his duties because uh, due to medical reasons, he's not able to be vaccinated. And so due to NHL protocol, uh, would not be able to fulfill his duties. And now this week, we've had two more coaches uh, in one league or another who've had to step away uh, due to uh, vaccination status. And it's uh, it's it's certainly we're starting to see how this season is going to be different. Yeah, it's um, you really feel for uh, the people that are making these are good people. Uh, they, you know, Sylvain Lefebvre, we know, I have respect for him. He's a mm-hmm. very good coach, a very good man. And, um, you know, I, 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 we're uncomfortable with what we see on uh, social media and the kind of criticism that, that falls along more political lines and, and doesn't necessarily, I guess, understand that uh, people can follow the, the science and make a personal choice. Um, so, 
I, 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 I feel for the coaches that are being put in a very difficult position and have to make uh, a difficult decision and, and uh, um, I just admire and, and respect them for what they've done. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, for Sylvain Lefebvre, he was, uh, had been hired earlier this summer uh, as one of Brad Larson's assistant coaches uh, at for the Columbus Blue Jackets, meaning he was getting opportunity to be behind the bench at the NHL level uh, and uh, is, does not plan to be vaccinated. Uh, and so it seems that Columbus has parted ways with him uh, and promoted um, someone from uh, their uh AHL affiliate to replace him uh, since it's pretty late in the game. And then just today, Colorado Avalanche announced that uh, a similar situation with one of their assistant coaches at the AHL level, the Colorado Eagles. uh, And so they've had to promote their ECHL head coach to replace him. And, and yes, that's just it, Rick. I mean, you know, people do have a choice to make. Uh, We don't, no one knows the reasonings. Uh, why someone may or may not choose to receive the vaccine. Uh, they may not be able to for some reason. Um, it may just be personal choice. Uh, there's there's all sorts of contingent factors that we won't know because those are personal things. Uh, and it's, it is... Uh, it has to be a hard decision to make, um, and especially when, when your job is at stake. So... Um, we, I, I, th- I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to see a lot more of this unfold over the next couple of weeks uh, and certainly into the first few months of the season. Uh, things are not going to be predictable. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a shame that we are still, we're 18 months into this and, and we're still uh, going through things that are unprecedented. And I think that's going to continue, unfortunately. Uh, we did mention uh, there at the top of the segment, uh, welcoming our three newest recruits to the Rocket Sports team. Uh, and we also mentioned that time is still available for you to apply if you are interested in joining the team for this upcoming season. Uh, whether you are a fan of the Habs, whether you're a fan of the Flyers, whether you're a fan of a completely different hockey organization, if you just want to uh, get your feet wet in sports media and hockey media, if you really enjoy the AHL, if you, you know, all, if you uh, enjoy uh, podcasts and have experience with produce audio production or, or uh, producing and so forth, lots of different opportunities. Uh, Rick, the best way, what's, what's the best way for people if they still are interested in putting in an application uh, to join the team? Uh, what's the best way for them to do that? You'll notice on our AHLReport.com site, there is a Join Our Team tab. Uh, For the Habs fans in our audience, if you go to allhabs.net, there is a Join Our Team tab on the allhabs.net site. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it it asks a few basic questions um, and and why you want to join our team. Um, and, uh, and how you can help us. And, and uh, once you submit that, we'll get back to you right away. And uh, you could be part of our Rocket Sports team. Absolutely. We'd love, to, we'd love to welcome you to the fold, to the family, as we, as we like to say. Uh, we're very excited about our new team members, uh, and uh, we would love to work with you as well. Uh, with that, Rick, it's been a whirlwind already. Um, <laughs> it's a busy show. Uh, we are going to uh, let you all get back to what's left um, of the week this week. 
Rookie camps are starting. It's an exciting time. Uh, be sure you're locked on to AHLReport.com. Uh, Rick, want to thank you for another great episode. And you too. Uh, and we look forward to meeting you right back here again next Tuesday, where we will be on the precipice of actual NHL training camps beginning, and then the real fun begins. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we will see you back here next Tuesday for another great episode of The Press Zone right here on Rocket Sports Radio. Click subscribe to never miss an episode of The Press Zone on Rocket Sports Radio. Visit AHLReport.com for the latest news on hockey prospects.